Welcome back. I'm Tracy Ramos, and this is Booze Nation, the podcast. We are in the month of July, and we are in a post-row era. I don't even know where to begin about that decision and what it's going to mean for the future of women in this country. I mean, I'm saddened, I'm disgusted, I'm pissed, all of it. Uh, And one of the reasons that I started this podcast was to talk about the pandemic and how it affected our lives in the bar and restaurant industry. But I also wanted to talk about what it was like dealing with the public from 2016 to the present. Obviously, 2016 is the start of the Trump years and the start of, you know, something wicked this way comes era, right? But there was something else that was happening even before he got into office. And it started when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to be the front runner for the Democratic nominee. And at that time, I was working in three bars in San Francisco. And, you know, San Francisco, the blue of the blue, the liberal of the liberal, the progressive of the progressive. And the things men were saying about Hillary Clinton was so disturbing. I mean, you don't have to like her politics. You don't have to like her. You don't have to like her as a person. We know the Clintons are pretty terrible people, right? But the aggressive and violent and hate-filled dialogue and conversations that a lot of men were having at that time was so unbelievable and so obviously unacceptable. It just is, you know, and I thought that if Hillary wins the presidency, the backlash on women is just going to be unbearable. And if Trump wins, it's going to be even worse. And unfortunately, I was right, because on June 24th, 2022, The Supreme Court took away rights of 167 million Americans, and it's a pretty bad feeling knowing that half the population, my population, of this country is not valued and not respected, especially when it comes to making their own decisions, making my own decisions. Give me a fucking break. So it's a pretty bad week, and it has been a weird time since that decision, and I'm not sure what to do right now but I'm working on it. Having said all that, I am now going to switch gears and switch this into a positive note. And I want to talk about the highlight of my week. And the highlight of that awful week was my discussion with my next guest, Scotty Jeanette Madden. And usually I speak with people that are directly connected to the bar and restaurant industry, bartenders, servers, front of the house, back of the house, all those kind of peeps. Uh, But this episode, I'm doing something a little different because Scotty Jeanette is a television writer, director, and producer. She directed the documentary Proud in a Pandemic, which is about the pandemic and how it affected some of the queer bars and queer community of downtown L.A., Now, having said that, Scotty Jeanette worked in bars as a bar back back in the day. So I felt that that gave her a lot of street cred in the bar and industry world. Uh, She's also on the board of directors of DTLA Proud, which we'll get into a bit later. But what I appreciated so much about Scotty Jeanette is that she is just so honest about her journey professionally and personally which showcases her strength and intelligence throughout the interview and beyond the interview as well. Um, So I am just so happy and lucky to have her on my podcast. And as usual, we're jumping right into the interview. 
Where are you come? Where are you zooming from? I'm zooming from my home in San Francisco. Oh, nice. Yes, where it's a very typical summer day, meaning it's really cold and there's a lot of fog. Yeah, I have some friends who used to be on the back when Candlestick was Candlestick. They were on the Diamond Vision crew for the Giants games. And, you know, they would uh, do a lot of camera work. And so my friend, he was packing in like a parka and gloves and a scarf. And go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to work. <laughs> like, what are you doing? He goes, have you ever been up in, in like high third base? It's like, it's the, might as well be the Arctic. It, it's the tundra. Yeah. Going to Giants games in September, which is normally really nice for San Francisco, was still freezing. Yeah. Right on the bay. It's like, ugh. It's still freezing. And are you in LA? Well, technically, if you mean Lake Arrowhead. So yeah, I mean, I, I was raised in, up here in the mountains. And after I, I sold my house, like in July of 2020. And then it was like, I Hollywood didn't know what it wanted to be when it was growing up. So I thought, well, I'm not going to go there. There's no Hollywood, right? It's no LA. So instead of, of uh, hanging out there, I moved up here. And so I'm, I'm about one more month up here. And then I'm moving back to LA in August. Oh, okay. Well, good for you to get a little bit of, you know, moving around time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's how to say this. I thought I could go home and that wasn't going to happen. I'm always going to be a mountain girl at heart. I get to walk my dog in the forest all day long. So that's beautiful. But the rest of the place has become so galvanized and so Trumpy that it's just not even like a, there's no community, number one. And what there is, is, is not something you want to be around. Yeah, I hear you. It's really becoming harder and harder to find community and a respectful community and just a community that can, I don't know, handle people's opinions and people's differences without it becoming a full-blown outrage scenario. Yeah. One of the things that drew me to your project was learning about DT LA or downtown LA and downtown LA Proud, just because it seemed that was a community that's growing and maybe was thriving until the pandemic. And then everything stopped, obviously not just downtown LA, everything stopped. But do you want to talk a little bit about downtown LA? Oh yeah, for sure. Or actually, I'm sorry. Do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? However you want to roll this, I'm really free form. So how, well, how do you want to play? I'm just putting in your hands. Tracy. Oh, awesome. Okay. So then let's just kind of start a little bit about the questions that I sent you. Um, okay. Introduce yourself in any way you want. I'm Scotty Jeanette Madden and have been a television writer, director, and producer for over 40 years. That's something to be proud of. It is, yeah. All right. In this industry? I mean, come on. That's something. To- yeah, but I, you know, it was at an event the other day where we were celebrating directors of, photography, of cinematography, and there were some legends in the room. Just, you know, American Cinema Society of Cinematographer, top echelon badass women and a couple of the men too that are very supportive of us and i made a joke and i said you know i was one of the first people and i don't have this confirmed but i know from the engineer's response that when i said i wanted to put a century 650 millimeter lens which is a telephoto lens it's about this long on the front of a beta cam and they looked at me like i had two heads both of them ugly that i was probably if not the first, pretty close to the first person to do that. And Nancy Shriver, who's one of the legends I was speaking about, she goes, you had me at beta cam. <laughs> and I said, yeah, none of the kids in this room know what that is, right? 
So anyways, I mean, I, you know, that's, I think part of the reason why I, I make a joke about being in there for four decades is that, you know, the, the industry has changed so much and it also hasn't changed at all. But the parts where it's changed is like one of the first jobs I ever had was a camera on my shoulder and a one inch recording deck on my hip that I had to carry all myself walking across the deck of the Miss Budweiser Thunderboat. So yeah. So by the stories I'm telling, you can tell that I have come up from the trenches, but I was very quick. I, I, I always knew that the reason why I got into the business in the first place was to tell stories. So learning the tools, the camera, the lighting, and the editing and, and all that was just always a means to an end. I was never going to be any one of those single things for any length of period of time and probably also for the rest of my life because I was always driving towards directing and writing. So that's what I do now. Uh, let's see. So I was married for about 20 years. I I say blurted, but blurted, probably the better word is vomited. <laughs> the truth of mm. that I had been hiding my entire life when I one morning did something I never believed I would ever do in my lifetime. Um, and I thought pretty well, and turns out I was very good at it, the hiding part. But the part that I was hiding was like a truth that was so buried inside of my head and my heart that I couldn't, I didn't think anybody could see that deep. I never did anything about it, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. But the truth is that I turned to the woman who I loved more than life and breath itself. I didn't turn to her. I woke up at the base of our bed holding two steaming cups of coffee, not knowing that it was about 5 a.m. And my lovely bride, spouse, actually, I say spouse because that's what she preferred. She hated the word wife. She said it sounded like knife. So in her <laughs> memory and honor, spouse, she said, it's awful early for coffee. I mean, it's a lovely thought, but it's Saturday morning. We normally get to sleep in. <laughs> what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I looked in these two cups of coffee in my hand, might as well be, you know, snakes. I, I didn't know how they got there. I didn't know how I was standing. I didn't know how I was at the foot of the bed. And as I was trying to get my bearings, it just came rushing out of my mouth. I'm a woman. And Marcy didn't know what to do with all that. She thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And I'm tamping down and, and telling in less dramatic fashion that I do in a TED talk, which is where I put all this energy so I could record it someplace where I could say it the best. And then that way people would understand. But anyways, bottom line, I came out and I didn't know I, was gonna out. I thought I was going to, I really did think I was just going to take this to my grave. I never believed transitioning. I didn't even understand what that would mean or be, or how that would look. Cause I had a life. I had a fabulous, amazing marriage. We loved and supported each other, you know, with every breath and fiber. So we took about five years to figure out what that meant and how that was going to fit in our life. And at first it was, we didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know I was asking to transition. I didn't expect those words to come out. So I didn't expect to deal with them. <laughs> once right. they did. I was really just picking up broken glass, you know, but Marcy tried to have me cured. And truly speaking, the one instinctual thing I knew to do at that time was to care for her. Because I knew from the age of four that I should never tell anybody that I was a girl. That's the part I knew. People always say, like, when did you know? I'm like, I, I only knew that I shouldn't do anything feminine or tell everybody I was a girl because I would get hurt. 
Yeah, That's exactly. I knew. Right. So I just didn't do it after a while. I was like, okay, don't do that. Do this over here. If you do this, you get props. You do that, you get hit. Well, that's not hard. <laughs> you, know? so you learn that very quickly. Yeah. Right. Kids aren't stupid. They, yeah. They learn that very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We're not dumb. So I tried to give her the space to understand because I think in, deeply at first it was just instinctual is what I'm saying. But what I come, came to know as we went on is that she was going to love me no matter what that I knew I, I knew our love was so deep. And she would say to me, like, how do you know I'm such a good person? I'm like, I, cause I've been married to you for over at this point now, 23 years, what doesn't matter. You know, I know you better than I know myself. You're not going to, you know, do this. But I also knew not to just like run roughshod over it. You know, I needed, she, cause I didn't know what I was asking for. Like all, all I did the first part, which was I'm a woman. I didn't know. I didn't have a plan to that. So in that five-year period of time, while we were both trying to kind of figure it out, both separately and together, I realized that because she loved me, that if I could come back with a cohesive ask, a real, this is what I need, then of course she would give it to me. So I needed to think about what that was. And I realized after a time that I did need to just stop living the way I had been, stop living, presenting as a male, because it was just ridiculous. It was theater. I was good at it. Big fucking deal. Sorry. You know, uh, you can say whatever you want. You can say whatever <laughs> bad curse words you want. I do it all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, it didn't matter that I was good at it. Big deal. You know, I had always created this facade. So because that's what people love to see. And I wanted them to have what they wanted, you know, since I wasn't going to ever be able to get what I wanted, who cares? Let's give them what they want. And then I'll earn my womanhood next lifetime and it'll all be good. But then when I got clear, I knew that I just didn't want to live that way anymore. And also for anybody who's in this similar situation, this is a part that I want people to hear is that when I said, I'm a woman, what Marcy heard was, I want to leave you. That took me the longest part to wrap my head around. And I, I didn't hear that. I didn't see that. Of all the things I'm telling you about that I do know about her, that was something I missed until, you know, until just before I officially came out to the world. And that makes me feel dumb. You know, it's like, you know, of course, once I see it in retrospect, of course, you know, she's a woman and in her world, she would be in love with a man. So if I'm a woman and she's like, okay, I get it. I, she had no problem accepting that part. It was accepting what it meant to our life. So it was like, well, that means that you want to go and be with men. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I mean, when, when she finally said it in that kind of, those kind of words, I was like, no, I'm, I'm into you. I've never not been in love with you. This is not about you. This is only about me. So once we got to there, then we started transitioning together. So fast forward, the normal coming out procedure, <laughs> mm -hmm. and we all develop our own, but you know, some people have started to leave a trail of breadcrumbs and they're useful and to some people. And really, you know, the only thing I would tell anybody in that situation is like, you have to stay true to your heart. You have to stay there. You know, you have to understand that what I always say is there's a guitar string that ties my heart to your heart. And it gets thwanged by this revelation because people feel like they think they know you. And then when you tell them for real, then they're like, well, I, then I don't know anything about you, which is a little dramatic, but it's up to me to turn in my 
side of the guitar string and it's up to you to do your side. And that takes some patience and love, but it has to be done by both sides. So that's also puts it on the other person. Like if someone in your family comes out, it's on you to accept them. You, you don't get to not accept them. Try explaining that to your God. There's no God in the world. I don't care what the churches are telling you right now that will be okay that you cut somebody out of your life because you thought your minister misread the text and said that it was an abomination, just complete horseshit. I agree. It's complete. Like, I don't know how, who, if you want to believe that, then you are an atrocious person. You, you've just now stepped outside of the humanity. You're yeah, you just, don't get it both ways. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. That was a lot to to do. That was really, that was lovely. And, <laughs> and I did listen to your TED talk about, okay. about that. So, and actually, you know what, if you don't mind, I'll link it to this episode if people want to, oh, please do, you know, hear the lengthy version. Of please it. do, because that, I, I, I tell it way better there. So what I want to know is about the downtown LA. And then did you ever live there? Because I know we just talked a little bit about where you were living, but the downtown LA, because I don't know LA well at all. It's just okay. one big freeway to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a San Francisco. Exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I am, I am 100%. Everything is one big freeway and everybody from LA talks about their freeways. And <laughs> I find it really amusing because I just don't, I don't know, but everybody knows all the freeways and I just feel like everyone's living off of freeway. So, well, we all, uh, eventually you will. I mean, you have to. <laughs> There's so many of them. Well, no. So I have not lived actually in downtown LA proper. However, I am on the board of directors for DTLA Proud, which is the organization that puts on the Pride Festival for downtown LA in traditionally August. And so this year we will be moving from where we had been for the previous five years. This will be the sixth year running, even taking 2020 off. And what else do I want to say about that? Yeah. So we're moving to an area called Grand Park, which is where City Hall is. And for literally the, you know, downtown LA epicenter of commerce and life. I think when the city fathers built the city, they must've believed that that was going to be the hub. You know, Los Angeles proper stretches, you know, half of Southern California. <laughs> seems at times. So that can be a bit daunting if you're not an Angelino. So, you know, technically I will be moving. I've been living up in the mountains of above San Bernardino up in Lake Arrowhead for the past two years, year and a half. And I'm moving back there August, just in time to start the festival for this year. So my life revolves a lot around downtown LA, obviously being on the board of directors, you know, everybody's been on Zoom. <laughs> But it is where our spiritual base is and our community base. And, you know, what separates, separates, that's the word, word. What our mission has always been was that the original founding members of the board started to recognize because they were bar owners, that there was a growing neighborhood. And what we didn't know at the time was that there were a large portion of the LGBTQ community plus community who didn't have the resources to get to WeHo, you know, West Hollywood, which is where the Los Angeles LGBT Center is and which is the largest in the world, by the way, which is also, you know, the things that people don't really understand about the LGBT centers around the world, but certainly in, in America is that 
as much as they are meeting places and or, you know, spaces for people to be quote unquote safe, they're also where people get, you know, life-saving services, you know, through the diligent work of everybody that's connected to all of these organizations. That's where we get prep. That's where we get for the trans community. It's a lot of times where people get their hormones from, you know, we have an incredibly large amount of our population that has been disowned by their families, discriminated against in employment and housing. And so just to get you, you know, the healthcare, good luck with that, right? But we have lots of people who have organized this and we also have great volunteers. And again, I'm talking about every LGBT center. This is what the really the bedrock of their mission is, is to provide these services for people. So that's what you know, DTLA found out once we started to have the Proud Festival was how dense the population of downtown LA queer community was and where we could go with that. So we're not just a pride festival. What we have been doing while we're holding these parties once a year has been building up the ability to hold a brick and mortar center ourselves in downtown LA. So that's that's kind of the you know our our goal as we're going forward. And we've had some great community partnerships and sponsors that have really gotten behind both what we do in the festival, because the festivals, our festival is a little bit different than kind of Los Angeles pride and West Hollywood pride, which just this past year divided into two pieces, Mm -hmm. because those are big events. And some people call them derisively gay Coachella because it's wristbands and and sponsored booths and big name concerts. And we have striven, striven, strove, had strove. Let me conjugate here to keep it as community based as possible. So, you know, in this year, I think we're going to probably coming up with the best model yet. And that's that we're going to have four large sections that make up the park that stretches from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion all the way down to City Hall, four tiers, and only one of them will be ticketed and cost money. The other three are open to the public without any tickets whatsoever. And with a family orientation, now that's queer family, right? So that's how you define it. And we allow that. We've got events, we've got things that are going to be there for small children, queer story hours and a water feature that's, you know, kind of, they can get in a splash zone and play around and entertainment. And it's going to be something that you wouldn't mind having your children at. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the 21 and over area at the bottom that is ticketed. And that's going to be all the things that you would expect that, especially at DTLA Proud Festival. So we'll have Summer Tramp there again, which is a giant water park. That sounds perfect. That sounds fun. Oh my God. It's out of control. Crazy fun. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds a lot of fun. Great. Oh my gosh. You know, San Francisco just had their pride civil. It's the end of June. And, you know, talking about the changes in this city and talking about the changes in the community, it's, it's now just become very corporate as here in San Francisco. It's almost like Google corporate gay pride parade or Facebook corporate gay pride parade. Right. It's it's really just, I don't know. It's, well, I mean, the key word is corporate here mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I feel loses a lot of, I don't know, just a lot of fun. Keyword. Yeah. I know that sounds kind of silly to say, but you just have these corporations 
now just parading their logos. Sure. Well, you know, the for me personally, the part that always is like, it's a protest. Yeah. Remember, we marched in the streets to go, we are here. We are queer. Get over it. You know, it was originally, and this is the thing that I love the most about Stonewall, you know, other than, you know, they weren't first. <laughs> Let's just get that out. <laughs> right, right. It was Cooper's Donuts, then it was Compton's Cafeteria, then it was the Black Cat, then it was Stonewall, you know, but whatever. But the thing about the protest was that it got the attention of the cishet community to join in the fight and to say, you know what, this is wrong to be treated this way. And it was against the police. Yes. You know, it Stonewall was owned by the mob, right? And it and it was protected until it wasn't protected. And those guys gave up the the people in the Stonewall probably once a month or maybe once every two months just so that they could keep the cops okay, let them go in, bang some trannies heads as they would say. And then, and then it would be all cool. Then they'd let them continue to fleece the gay community because it was the only place where they were comfortable drinking. So, you know, and, and we will take that. I mean, the thing about safe spaces is that they're the, they're, they become our churches. And that's something that we tried to, you know, handle in my documentary was that people call them bars, but they're, they're our churches. There are places where it's the only place you're going to be seen and be comfortable being seen. And you're also going to be safe being seen. You know, it's, I feel like we're sliding back to the 1950s and 60s where it's going to take a, you know, a secret password to get into a door because you don't know who's going to turn on you. And that's very real. You know, I hear, I hear exactly what you're saying about sliding back and feeling safe and not feeling safe. And yeah. then in these spaces. So let's talk about that. Just this great segue right into your documentary. Okay. Thank you. We call it proud in a pandemic and it's not proud in the pandemic. It's proud in a pandemic, because if you're queer and you're alive today, you've been personally through four pandemics. You've been through racism. You've been through homophobia. You've been through HIV AIDS and you've been through COVID and crazy thing is the parallels. And the one thing is that, you know, the queer community, we have scars for sure. We've suffered greatly through these pandemics. However, we've also developed muscles and we know how to get through it. And our, our tagline is, you know, the way to get through a crisis is never a straight line. <laughs> we know to band together. We know how to protect each other. We know how to you know, watch each other's backs. We know how to actually care for each other. So we looked at the, the pandemic through the lens of the downtown LA queer community. And we have over 22 interviews with community leaders, as well as, you know, just, you know, people who live their their activism is their personal life, you know, you know, the, the personal is political, as they used to say. And so through that lens, we've been able to tell the story of how the pandemic went down. What happened was we knew that we weren't, you know, we thought at first, because we were in our festival was in August, with everybody closing down. First, it was 
you know, LA, then it was Long Beach, then it was San Diego. And then, you know, just like one after another was canceling Coachella canceled South by Southwest canceled. We were like, well, we're okay. We're in August. This is going to be over in a couple of months. Right. (laughs) Wishful thinking. Yes. I remember those thoughts too, when it was just going to be six weeks. (laughs) Yeah. So once that happened, we were, what are we going to do? What are we going to do then? And we'd been through a couple of now at this point, virtual prides and we're like it's not really our style that was great that we had those so what are we going to do and the the word came up that we were going to do a documentary and i came to that meeting late (laughs) and being the only professional television producer director on the board of directors it was like i said well what idiot would direct this like come on you know i'm thinking like we want to be done by august but which is when our normal thing and we're having this conversation in may and they're like well you will i'm like why no i usually do things sane you know i don't want to hurt people i'm pretty smart at this i've got four decades under my belt i know how to do this for real but one of our board members andreas regal said you know what we have to leave we owe it to our legacy to those generations that come after us to show how we got through this crisis ourselves. We owe it to show them because we got through our crisis or are getting through our crisis because of what we watched our ancestors do. So we have to do that. So that's what we did. So we made it as a time capsule of, of following, like, how did we do it? And how did it affect us? And what was going on? And, you know, you, we couldn't tell the story without telling what happened, you know, with all the social unrest after George Floyd was fucking murdered, right? Mm-hmm. And and Tony McDade two days later, and, you know, like the dominoes start falling that way, and it's just crumbling around us. So we're trying to, like, care for each other, care for ourselves, and also protest the destruction of America right before our very eyes. So I think we did a good job with that. And I think it's ultimately, it's inspirational. And I mean, it really does get into the whole idea of, you know, what happens when your safe spaces are taken away? You know, what exactly. do you yeah, so that was that's I think I think we've got something that we can help the straight world see. Plus, you know, we make the case that had it not been for Larry Kramer and the act up boys, mostly boys, a few girls, <laughs> but mostly boys, we wouldn't have jabs in our arms because the same vehicle that was used to fast track the vaccine was because of expanded access, which came about. Thank you very much, Anthony Fauci, who was there at the time. And he's very candid. You know, we've got a couple of interviews. They, we didn't do them. There were some ones that were out there of him admitting that, you know, I got it wrong, but Larry showed me that I got it wrong. And so we figured out how to do expanded access. That's, so. that's so great. That's, yeah, I haven't seen any of those. Uh, let's talk about some of the bars. You mentioned Red Light and Precinct, Coles, Franca, Franca. Bar Franca, yeah. Mm-hmm. What what were those like to you for you, and what what drew you to those bars on a personal level, and then in the in the documentary? I well, love bars. I mean, I'm still a bartender. I love bars, so I love learning <laughs> about them. Yeah, my favorite thing altogether. Well, Coles uh, of all the ones that you mentioned, Coles is the only one that isn't a queer bar, but it's right across the street from Red Line, so we make it a queer bar as much as we can, and it is one of the old speakeasies, and also they have the distinction of they're, they're in a fight with Felipe's for who created the French dip sandwich. But, <laughs> you know, Felipe's, as much as it was my family's favorite growing up, is the sawdust on the floor, 70-year-old waitress behind the, the 
you know, the counter. Heck yeah. Beer and wine. Great place. No, no shade. I'll take that sandwich any day, right? But Cole's is a speak is an actual speakeasy. And the bartenders there are, if you want to know about alcohol, if you want to hear about, you know, what is a Sazerac, you know, that's the place to go. So that's one of my personal phase when I'm down there. But I was drawn to Redline truly because I met, I was speaking at the Queer X Festival, and the president of Queer X introduced me to Oliver Alpuche who is the president of DTLA Proud and Mm -hmm. the owner of Redline. So I didn't really know that much, anything about the downtown scene per se until that moment. And he saw my TED talk and then invited me on the advisory board. And that's how I started going to Redline. I didn't really officially get into Redline until after the, you know, till this year, because all of my unofficial parts going in there was with meeting with him. And that's where we used where we shot most of our interviews. So I had never gotten into it pre-pandemic. It was only during the pandemic. Afterwards, it's the vibe there is it's truly a queer bar. There's no, there's no delineations whatsoever. There's that's where the drag brunches are. That's where everybody gets together to watch Rupert. Sounds sit. perfect. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Bar Franca does skew a little bit more lesbian, which is my more my tastes. You know, the bartenders there are very good. The bartenders at at Redline are good, and they're good at keeping a massive crowd happy, right? The the bartenders at Bar Franca are the ones that you know you can sit down and ask a question of, and even on a you know, like jam and Friday night, and you'll get the drink that you were hoping for, right? <laughs> you'll still get that at Redline. Yeah, but, <laughs> no, I know exactly what you read. <laughs> yeah, and precinct. Precinct is the one I've spent the least amount of time in, but the owner of it, Brian McIntyre, is one of the, you know, one of the leading voices in my documentary because he was really articulate at helping understand how the pandemic really went after businesses and small businesses. I mean, it was like a bulldozer. And so he was really good at doing that. So that's the place where you're going to find the go-go dancers, mostly male, always male. I don't think I've seen female go-go dancers in there. So that's, it's really, that's what I would call a gay bar. And it's known for that. You know, it's, it's, it's called precinct. And Brian tells a great story that it was, he had lost his partner, Thor. Thor and, and Brian had, st- had started precinct together. And it's right down the street from the actual LAPD precinct. And Brian was like, I don't think that's a good idea. And Thor's like, oh, I think it's the best idea. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's one of it's a that's a place that is a complete scene. It's a whole you know the whole second floor of a building that occupies a whole corner block. It's giant. It's labyrinthian. There's room upon room upon room. There's several bars inside of there. So that's a place where it's going to be just you know in and during any Pride Festival, it's going to be a complete madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm going to say thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been so informative and it's been just lovely to meet you and thank you so much. Thank you again, Scotty Jeanette. And that weird ending was, yeah, my Zoom cutting out again. Um, But you can see why my conversation with Scotty Jeanette was such a ray of sunshine. Thank you for your time and your inspiration about moving forward and surviving the pandemic and surviving the current state of affairs and what we need to do for the next generations to help them survive. 
the documentary Proud in a Pandemic is not available yet. It is up for festival submissions, and as soon as they get accepted, Scotty Jeanette will let us know where and when we can see it. So we wish Proud in a Pandemic and Scotty Jeanette a speedy submission process, because I can't wait to see the entire documentary. And here's hoping that we find a community that we can call our own, a community that is safe and respectful. Thank you for listening. Booze Nation, the podcast, is on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please follow, rate, and review. Booze Nation, the podcast, is also on Instagram and Twitter. If you have questions or comments, DM me. Thank you again so much for listening. And remember, fuck the Supreme Court. And please tip your bartenders. Thanks. Thanks.